as we start, let me tell you about three people. Um, and as I tell you about these three people, don't try and read into them. Don't look around the room as if it might be one of these three people. But they are based on real people, but no one in this room and no one at St. Mary's. So just listen and enjoy the stories. Uh, first is Hannah. Hannah has been a Christian for as long as she can remember. Uh, she grew up in a Christian family. Hannah really enjoys her work, and she works hard at her work. But when deadlines approach for her work, it totally takes over her life. So she doesn't sleep properly, she doesn't eat properly, church goes out of the window, friends go out of the window. Her work totally consumes. The deadline is everything. Or take Emma. Emma's been a Christian for most of her life. Emma married Alex. Um, and they were really good for each other. Both of them Christians, both great at encouraging the other to keep going and to keep growing in their Christian faith. Emma and Alex really wanted kids, and yet kids didn't come. They tried everything, and nothing worked. And as a result, Emma grew angry at God. She just couldn't understand why this would happen to her. As a result, she found it hard to go to church, especially the times when there were loads of kids around and slowly just dropped off. How could God treat me this way, Emma felt. And then there's Julian. Julian loves serving in church. <laughs> He's on the stewarding team. He does the refreshments. He helps with the youth. He especially enjoys the opportunities that get him up the front and he's on the prayer rotor. And yet one time after the service, Julian was chatting to Sarah, who did the reading for that service. And a few people came up to them as they were chatting after the service, and, and he noticed how they were really grateful for how Sarah did the reading, thought she did a great job. But for him, it was just a kind of quick, oh, thanks, Julian, and that was it. And it really cut him up. He couldn't let it go. He goes home, and over Sunday lunch, he cannot stop thinking about it. What was wrong with my prayers? I thought they were pretty good. Next time, well, next time I really need to, need to nail those prayers then. If you've been with us for the last two equips, as we've thought about union with Christ, and especially the second session of those equips, as we, kind of, as we started to think how it applies to our lives. And so union with Christ means that we are justified, we have been forgiven, and we are being sanctified, that God is making us more and more like Jesus. We are being transformed to be more like Jesus. And yet, if you're anything like me, I just wish it could happen a little bit faster. If you're anything like me, I sometimes don't feel like it's happening at all. In fact, I thought that the longer I, would, I, the longer I was a Christian, the easier it would get, right? And yet sometimes I can feel like it's the opposite. I seem to become more and more aware of how sinful I am. And so that battle that's going on in the process of sanctification, being transformed to be more and more like Jesus Christ. That is what we're going to have a look at this evening. What is that battle all about? We are wonderfully united with Christ, 
And yet, I'm sure for all of us, we, we recognize that ongoing battle with sin, the ongoing competition, or if you like, the tug of war that competes for our lives and our hearts. Hopefully, you have got a handout on your table, and you've got a pen, and you've got a Bible. If you haven't got a Bible, lean behind you and grab a Bible. We're going to spend some good time in God's Word as we think about what is going on in this battle. So first, let's have a think about this battle. On your handout, you've got three references there. Exodus chapter 20, Jeremiah chapter 2, and Romans chapter 1. Why don't we take a few minutes in our tables and just work your way through those three references and have a think about those questions and what's going on in these verses. And if you manage to fire through those questions, have a think then, expand on what what is the battle then that is going on that these verses talk about. Let's go for a few moments in our tables, have a chat about those verses. Um, Let's come back in and be great to hear some thoughts of some of the things that you looked at in those verses. So let's work through them, and I think a mic will travel around the room if you want to share your thoughts. So just um, looking at those questions, just looking at the text and the passages, uh, what are some of the things that come out of them? So Exodus chapter 20, um, either of those questions, what has God done, and what is the ask of his people from those verses? Exodus 20, 1 to 4. Don't worry if it's the obvious answer. That's what helps. Anyone at all? You can always rely on me to fill a silence. Um, (laughs) Thanks, Jill. God has has brought his people out of slavery. Great. And they... Can you want me the second one? Go for it, yeah. On a roll. I'll do a spoiler alert here. Um... And they decide, and, and he will ask them quite simple: only worship me, don't worship any other gods. Great. Simple as that. Lovely. So in Exodus chapter twenty, we have what's been known as the most famous moral code in the world ever. And yet, it's really important when we come to the Ten Commandments to get the context right, that it's not the most famous moral code in order to earn our favor and salvation with God. No, that has already been done. They've already been saved. So God says, before he gets into the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You have been saved. You have been rescued. You are mine. And so now you are mine, here's how I call you to live. And so first two commandments, or first commandment, as I am the Lord your God, have no other gods before me. What does that look like? Well, second commandment, do not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, 
or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. God warns that an idol could be made from anything, in heaven above, the earth beneath, or even the waters below. There's the starting point right at the start in Exodus. I am your God. You have been saved. Therefore, worship me and me alone. Let's move on to Jeremiah chapter 2. What what have God's people done? How is it described? Uh, It says that they've they've exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Yeah. We thought it was interesting that glory has a capital G, so it's, it's almost like God's people's glory is him. That's how we read it anyway. Yeah, okay, Maybe great. Wrong, but... So capital G, glory. Yeah. Yeah, good. So they've exchanged their glory for idols. Any other thoughts from anyone else? Either something different or expanding on what Rob and his table have said? We particularly liked um, how God says to them, you've dug your own systems. They leak like a sieve. You've abandoned me, your living water, for your own worthless stuff. Brilliant. Lovely. Anything else from anyone else, either to expand on what's been said or all the way over the other side? I don't think Alex has got anything. It's just up for... I'm looking at I am actually saying table next time. Yeah. Um, well, we were picking up a bit like Peter was saying just then, that um, it's a really willful thing. You don't accidentally do this. Um, and the other thing that this one pulls out um, more so than the other two is, is that sense of this is a horrific thing. Like, it's be appalled mm. at what you've done. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Anyone else looking more over this side of the room? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really, can be anyone. There you go, Philip in the middle. I think we just added that they made something that uh, doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Go on, expand on the cisterns. They made cisterns which then don't do what they're supposed to do. Brilliant, yeah, yeah. So you see what's happened, verse 11. My people have exchanged their glory, capital G, for worthless idols. Be appalled at this. Shudder with great horror. There's a swap that's gone on. And Jeremiah uses this language of swap to show the almost self-destructive tragedy of idolatry amongst God's people. A swap that, like we said, is a willful, it seems just a, ah, just... I don't know what you did when you were younger or what kids do now. Like in the playground, swapping your, your football stickers and, and, and you go a good swap, bad swap. And, and God goes, this is a horrendous swap. And then uses the picture, you, you could have had springs of living water. And you turn from them and you turn to cisterns, broken cisterns, man-made dug systems that can't even do what they're meant to do and hold the water. Um, as Rob highlighted, this 
this sense of glory exchanging their glory, or if you look at the footnote, it could be my glory with capital G, is this kind of God's glory that's bound up in his people. And so God's glory, someone described it as, the cloud of God's glory shines with the infinite beauty, power, goodness, and truth of God himself in all his immensity, infinity, and and eternity. All of God's glory, by being God's people, is found in God's people. They get to enjoy God's glory. And so effectively, God's glory is their glory. And what do they do with it? They give it up for for worthless idols. There's a swap. Here's how one writer uh, described what's going on. It's a bit of a long quote, but I think it really helps us see the um, absurdity of it. It means exchanging the worship of the glorious God for the worship of an inglorious idol with no glory to it at all. That's like planting a stinging nettle in the middle of your lawn instead of a rose bush. Stupid. It means exchanging being close to the acts and the presence of God, which have revealed his glory, for being close to an idol which has no power and no living presence. That's like giving up a meal out with your best friend for a date with a tailor's mannequin. Dumb. It means exchanging the glory of God reflected in our character for the inglorious characteristics of an idol, which would be reflected in our character instead. That's like taking skiing lessons from a Dutch friend who has never left Holland rather than from the world downhill champion. Mad. You see the, the swap that's gone on that God's people have done from the glory of God for worthless idols. Jeremiah 2. Um, let's go Romans chapter 1 then, as this picture is used again, um, but into the New Testament. What have humanity done? Bring out some of the things that this passage tells us humanity has done. All the way over there. Good work, Ellie. Earn your refreshments. It's actually um, quite complicated in that... um, the wrath of God is provoked. It's revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So in other words, if they're wicked, nobody can see the truth. Nobody can see, in this case, the glory of God. They suppress it. So um, our wickedness gets in the way of people seeing God, if you like. Um, and then of course you have to think about the creation Mm -hmm. since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature and so on all of those things are being masked they're clearly understood or should be clearly understood and how many people do we all know who say how can I see God you can see God in his creation I said yeah right It's natural. It's just an incredibly difficult thing Mm -hmm. um, that we are facing, if you like, that it it is so easy to suppress the truth by our wickedness. And it overcomes. It seems to overcome us 
Um, it seems to overcome the world, people's wickedness. And that's what people concentrate on rather than the glory and majesty of God. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you, Peter. Others want to add down here? Uh, it, it seems like there's a, a willful or um, a purposeful turning away from, from God, from seeing him, can be pl- uh, clearly perceived, plainly known, seeing it, like standing in, front, in, in, in the street, seeing the bus coming, turning your back and saying, I don't believe in buses. <laughs> and, and that is it. And then the wrath of God's going to hit you really hard. So, Great. And what is happening, linked to, similar to what we saw in Jeremiah 2, what is happening then? Philip here, or Rupert, on your way there? Yeah, so there's this exchange, isn't there? So opposites, good for evil, truth for a lie. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like in Jeremiah, it talks about the two sins. So you've got both the sin of abandoning God, but also then of embracing idols. Brilliant. Yeah. Philip, want to add to that? Not sure. Why not? Same, really. Yeah, about exchanging the glory of God for um, of the glory of the immortal God for images, and then worshiping uh, created things rather than the Creator. Yeah. So just, yeah, God is there, and rather than going for God, we go for these stupid little things. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, not brilliant. Not brilliant at all. <laughs> but good answer. Um, exactly. So you see the swap that we saw in Jeremiah. Do we have? Go on, let's go. Go on, Peter. Hang on, wait for the mic. We need to hear you. What I was thinking about is what is modern-day idolatry in the Western world? And my conviction is it's the worship of people like footballers, cricketers, sports, your own. (laughs) People do actually worship them, and they worship their teams. And they're all things that Christians... Which of this is really like it? This is spoken about God speaking to Israel, His people. These things can actually get into the church people. I've often been in conversations with people talking about the Lord, and all of a sudden it turns to football. Mm-hmm. And this has been, and I, I was aware the danger that we have of worshiping things on earth rather than concentrating our hearts and minds on God Himself. I'm battling it all the time. Mm-hmm. But God gives, has forgiveness, and I admit it, that sometimes I do get taken away by things I ought not to. They seem innocent in themselves, but they are actually taking away our attraction and worship to God by getting caught up in other things. Our minds can just be taken over by things of this world and the and there are some exciting things that go on let's be honest about it but there mustn't be things that take over our lives great well I mean we did have a second half to think about what it would look like in the 21st century um, and what that means for us but there we go Um, all done a quick finish let's keep going because hopefully it'll be helpful to flesh that out for ourselves and think about what that looks like. Um, But notice the same pattern in Jeremiah 2 happening in Romans chapter 1. The swap that goes on as Paul tells the story of humanity. And notice the language that's used, that we swap the glory of God for images. Telling the story right back in Genesis 1 is we're made in the image of God. We are made to image God, to show God off. 
And so God says, do not have any other idols for yourself. Do not worship anything else. Worship me. You don't need anything else to be your God. I'm your God, and you show me off. You are made in my image. And yet all of humanity have exchanged the glory of the immortal God, verse 23, for images. All of humanity, verse 25, have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and so worship and served created things rather than the creator. So idolatry, here's a definition of idolatry. An idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And as we've said, so often they can include good things for us. So often they can include God-given things for us. And yet what we do is we take a good thing and we elevate it so high we make it into a God thing. We take a good thing and make it into the ultimate thing. And it's taught so seriously in the Bible that we've seen it's the heart of the first and second commandment back in Exodus chapter 20. So serious that it sums up the whole of humanity. Here's what some writers have written about idolatry. Idolatry is not only one sin among many, but it's fundamentally what is wrong with the human heart. Idolatry is always the reason we ever do anything wrong, someone else put. Or a third, idolatry is one way of looking at every kind of sin we may commit. It's about putting something, or maybe even someone, in God's rightful place, and so worship that instead. And as we've heard, it's not just something that they do out there, but the sad thing is that it can infiltrate in here as well, and can affect us. It's something we can all be in danger of, something we can all be guilty of, and yet, the Bible says, it is so not worth it. So let's take a moment to look at the next few passages as we think about the uselessness of idols and idolatry. Um, have a look at these verses, these passages on, the, on your sheet. So Isaiah chapter 46, Isaiah chapter 40, and Jeremiah chapter 10. And again, back in your groups, have a chat about what those passages, all three of those passages, what do they tell us about God? What do they tell us about idols? Okay. Sorry, I realise that's not enough time. Um, but hopefully when it's split up across the room, we'll see what we've got. Um, so let's, let, let's just look at Isaiah 46 first, and we'll probably get through that one before we pause for a break. So we're all over here this time, Ellie, so we're all good. Um, anyone from this area want to share, what are some of the things we learn about idols? What are some of the things we learn about God in comparison from Isaiah 46? Idols are actually a burden, Great he says. Um, uh, you compare them with, oh, perhaps, perhaps it's somebody else now. <laughs> Good, so verse two, idols are actually a burden. 
And then down here, yep. They have no life in them. They have no they have life to in be them. Carried. Sorry. They have to be carried. They have to be carried. Yep. Other things, either about idols or God. Clarify which one you're talking about. <laughs> Would be good. <laughs> it was on the same lines, but it was you just put them up there and they, they don't do anything. You know. So yes, they're they're lifeless. They're inactive compared with God and uh, you said burdensome and wearisome, so yeah, that was it. Yeah. Great. Down the front as well. Um, they, uh, um, they sit in its place and it stands there and it cannot move from its place. It means that if you poke it and it falls over, it won't right itself again. It doesn't have any power. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's move to God. Let's get some encouragement. <laughs> and in contrast to the idols, God says, I will do all that I please in verse 10. Great. What a contrast that is. I will do all that I please. <laughs> God is the one who sustains. Great. God is the one who sustains. One more, maybe. Go on, Peter. God says, I have made you and I will carry you, whereas they have to carry their idols, which are dead. So you see the contrast, and for those who haven't had a chance to look, it's worth opening the passage up, and you just see the contrast that's made here between the idols and God. To give a little bit of background context here, um, God's people Israel are in captivity by the superpower of the time, the Babylonians, and now Babylon is being attacked by the upcoming, the uprising superpower, Persia. And so these two idols in verse 1, Bel and Nebo, they're the two key Babylonian gods that the Babylonians would look to. They're idols to save them. And yet, and yet we read, they're useless. <laughs> they cannot do anything. In fact, they're just a burden. You've got to carry them around. You look to them and they do nothing. You can poke them and they don't move. They're burdensome. They're useless. And yet compared to God... Well, God carries your burdens, verses 3 and 4. They have to carry their idols, and yet God upholds us. God is the uncreated, the saving God, who does what he pleases. It's, it's a total contrast between the two, and, and almost so much so that the almost reader, and it's, it's comical <laughs> how useless these idols are compared to the almighty creator God. Isaiah 46. Um, why don't we pause there? I think that's time for a break, and then we'll come back to those other passages in a bit, Isaiah 40 and Jeremiah 10. We're going to start again. Um, I'm going to pray and then hand straight over to Woody. Thank you, our Father, for what we've seen of you. Thank you that you are not like the idols, 
that you sustain your people, that you act, that you know beginning and end. And we pray, Father, as we reflect more on what it means to serve you over idols, that you would help Woody to speak well and faithfully help us all, Father, to listen to your word. And we pray, Father, that you would uh, help sanctify our hearts so that we are drawn uh, to you over anything uh, in this created world. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good. I reckon we're about a quarter of the way through the content, but we're halfway through the evening. So we might speed up just a little bit um, as we go through this next 40 minutes. Um, So we have looked at Isaiah 46 and seen the uselessness, the burdensomeness um, of idols compared to God. Let's go Isaiah 40, which is kind of the middle section. What are some of the things you pulled out there about how God is described and how idols are described. Uh, We just, uh, it's quite a funny passage because it just paints this kind of absurd uh, juxtaposition, if you will, between like just how absurdly enormous God is and how, you know, the nations are nothing to him. They're they're dust on a scale. And then then it kind of switches and says, and focuses on kind of how much hard work a craftsman has to put into making a puny little idol. Um, and it's just, a, it's, it's kind of written as, to be as, as absurd as possible, I guess. Yeah, yeah, very similar to Isaiah 46. Anything else from those middle tables? That's a great summary. Anything the other tables want to add? Great, good summary, Rob. Here's here's the God of the universe, as Isaiah says. He measures the waters, he holds the dust, he weighs the mountains, verse 12. He has a mind that we cannot comprehend or understand, verse 13. The nations around him don't compare. He sits enthroned, verse 22. Verse 26, incredibly, he brings out the starry host one by one. He calls them each by name. This is the God of the universe, And yet the idols who the people of God are tempted by have to be crafted by craftsmen, made by humans. It's almost as if Isaiah is mocking the people of God to go, do you not see how ridiculous this is? Do you not see how irrational it is to turn from the living God, the creator of all things, who holds mountains in his hands and knows every star by name? to idols that can just do nothing. There is just no competition between those statues and God. And then Jeremiah 10, over this side of the room. What are some of the things? It's nice and easy for Ellie. Um, So I think there's not much more that can be said, but I think maybe one thing that strikes me in this passage specifically is how the people fear what God has put in nature and in earlier on it said about in um, I think it was Romans that the things that you know it's clear to everybody because of the things God has made and yet they're frightened of these things and to in order to escape that fear the lengths they go to they cut down a tree which is like really hard work and then they craft it and then they make this thing and then they stick it up and make sure it doesn't fall over 
and, and worship it. So they really go to extreme lengths to run away from the reality of life and truth with God. Yeah, great. Others from that half of the room? Um, yeah, I think it's yeah much the same as kind of has previously been said um, and talking about, you know, how actually, um, you know, the the idols are worthless and yet we've got God who um, when he is angry the earth trembles and then got that compared to the idols um, and I like this in my version apparently it's different in different versions but in my version it simply says like a scarecrow in a cucumber field and I just like that juxtaposition, juxtaposition of God who can shake the earth to a scarecrow in a cucumber field it's brilliant language, isn't it, by Jeremiah? Cucumber field in that version. I've got melon patch in my version. We've got a few, we've got a few melons so over here. Um, Jeremiah looks at the God of the universe and compares them to idols which are just like scarecrows in a melon patch. They're made by people. They're unable to speak. They need to be carried around. They can do nothing. Jeremiah just makes that comparison and says, God is living. Your idols are dead. God is eternal. He has no beginning, no end. The idols start in a workshop and end up in the tip. God makes everything. The idols have to be made themselves. Idols are useless. And yet, we go into Romans and we see that idolatry doesn't just stop in the Old Testament where they form statues and bow down to them, but we can make anything, out, we can make anything an idol and we exchange um, the awesome God for images made out of anything. And so it's not just an Old Testament statue thing. Idolatry is taking anything that we see around us, and often good things that God has given us, and we elevate them and raise them and make them a God thing and make them an ultimate thing. Just like the people in the Old Testament who we laugh at as Isaiah and Jeremiah in particular shows the ridiculous nature of what they are doing, yet the world around us, and let's not be so naive to think it doesn't infiltrate into us, can do exactly the same thing. And so that can beg the question, why do we still do it? And so that takes us, I think, to the heart of the matter. Because the Bible says that these things grab us deeper than we might think. So let's turn to um, the next passage, Mark chapter 7, verses 14 to uh, 23. And back in our groups... Let's spend a few moments, a few minutes, looking through these verses in Mark chapter 7 as we think about why we can still go after them, how they can grab us deeper than we thought. Um, so have a look at Mark chapter 7 on your tables. Here's, um, have a look, discuss what you see in the verse. Here's a question to get you thinking. Um, where does, in Mark 7, where does the uncleanness come from and where does it not come from in these verses? And so what strikes you about that? Have a few minutes, and then we'll come back together.
Okay. Let's hear a few comments of some of the things you've been chatting about from that passage in Mark chapter 7. Especially thinking about where the uncleanness comes from and doesn't come from, but other things you might have drawn out. We, we said we love this passage because we love bacon very much. Okay, but that's not it. The, um, it's, it's about the thing of uh, the, the Pharisees who thought that the things that they do, the things that they touch, the things that they eat, that those rituals of cleaning makes them good, following the law. Whereas Jesus, reminding us of the Sermon on the Mount, said it's not what's outward or it's what goes in your heart. It's that sin that's in your heart, and, and that is what defiles you. Great, thank you. Anyone want to add anything or anything else you were discussing? Um, Steve was just saying that... <laughs> like it, Anya. <laughs> um, that things in society, we like to try and blame society um, for our evil things that are inside of that. But it's not. It's already, it's already in the heart. Um, and, you know, the temptations to, to follow those things is, is just our heart because it's um, unclean. Great. So the battle between things out there that we can see that we can often blame but actually this passage is saying there's a deeper thing, a deeper source. Yeah, great. This table was there. Uh, we were saying that um, like good things that God gives us, we can make unclean. So it's not that they are inherently like unclean things, but we make them unclean. So even good things that God gives us can be unclean. Yeah, and, and again, as we've mentioned with idolatry, so often, not always, it can be wrong things, but so often can be the good things, the good gifts that God has given us that we make into ultimate things that we change. John Calvin, the reformer, called our hearts an idol factory. He says it all flows from our hearts. It's, um, it's that our idols have captured our hearts And so throughout the Bible, the Bible talks about our hearts being the seat of our being. So here's some verses, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Or Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Or Ezekiel 36, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Or into the New Testament, Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings the good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. 
I heard it described like this. Imagine uh, your hand represents you, and your heart is the palm of your hand. And so flowing out of your heart or flowing out of your palm, uh, you have your mind, your thinking. You have your emotions, your feeling. You have your will, your volition. You have your conscience, your sense of right or wrong. Um, And you have your imagination. Those are your faculties. And yet it all flows out of your heart. It's so much deeper than just simply the things that we do or the things that we might think. It's, it's not less than those things, but it's so much more than just those things. And, and I think we, we kind of know that, because if you think about yourself, reflect on, your, on yourself for a minute, so often the things that we don't want to do, we know we don't want to do it, and we know we want to stop, and yet we find it so hard, because idolatry captures our hearts. Here's how uh, Thomas Cramner put it. What the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find desirable, and the will finds doable. What the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find desirable, and the will finds doable. Idolatry captures our heart, and out of the, out of the, flow, the flow of our heart comes what we think and what we do. So Tim Keller, the American pastor, summed it up like this. The human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. And so here's the challenge then and yet so vital, is as we think about the danger of idolatry, as we think about how it captures our hearts, we really need to identify what those things are that can capture our hearts. So for the rest of the time, it'll be a little bit more practical, I guess. Um, And I found it really helpful um, to think about it in two ways. Um, One person splits idols up into surface idols and deep idols. Surface idols are are more the things that are out there. Maybe the things that we do have that can become our everything. And we need to keep hold of them. And they're everything to us. For example, material possessions. Or on the flip side, it might be the things that we don't have, and yet everything becomes getting hold of it. So whether that's the relationship we crave or the career that we crave. And as we've said many times, often these can be good things that end up becoming a God thing. And at times they may be things that aren't good for us at all. They're surface idols, and then there are deep idols. So goals that almost lie behind the drive that we have to get hold of our surface idol. So we think if, if, just, if we just get hold of that surface idol, well, then it fulfills a deeper idol that our surface idol might uncover. So it can often be less tangible, less visible, and, and yet pick apart the surface idol. That's the thing that we're really going after. That's the thing that we really crave. We go after a surface idol, whether that is a good thing we make a God thing or whether that's a, a, a wrong thing that we shouldn't be going after. 
because we think that it provides a deep idol. Um, and so what we're going to do in a moment in our groups is just think what, what might examples be of surface idols in the culture around us, but also what we might be tempted by as Christians. But thinking deeper than that, what might those deeper idols be that those surface idols are actually going after? And try to link them up rather than just a list of one and a list of another. Try to link them up of what that might be. Um, these might be ones that you find personally, if you're happy to talk about them, or they might be totally hypothetical ones um, that you look at the world around. I was about to say the people around you, not the people around you, the world around you. Don't judge other people on their idols. Um, but the world around us, as we look at the culture around us, but also the danger and the temptations that the church and Christians might face as well. So let's have a think about that. Before we do, here's some helpful questions I've um, been asked to almost help me think, how can I identify what my surface and deep idols are? What do I daydream about? What, what are the things that capture my imagination when I'm just wandering down the street or trying to get to sleep? What do I fear? Idols can often give us a sense of control. So what are the things that I might fear? What do I care most about? Idols often can capture our emotions. What are the things that I care most about? What do I spend my money on? Idols can often or sometimes control how we spend our money. Or what am I really living for that I really think if I just get that, that will bring me the happiness and the meaning that I'm craving. Why don't we go back into groups, um, have a think, have a chat in your groups. What might those be for maybe people you know, the culture around us, the world around us, the challenges, temptations for us today? If we see the reality of the battle that's going on, and yet the Bible shows us the, the uselessness of idols, and yet if we were to ask ourselves honest questions, we say we're still tempted by them because they have captured our hearts, how then can we beat our idols? How then can we do something about it? Well, part of the key is that we, it is no good just trying to remove our idols. We need to replace our idols. It's no good trying to remove our idols. We need to replace our idols because if we remove them, because they've captured our hearts, our hearts just find some way of just getting back to them. Most of, them, most of you will know or have heard Lily uh, running around at some stage uh, since we've moved here. Um, Lily can get her hands on things that aren't the best thing for her, whether it's dangerous for her or maybe more dangerous for us, and we don't want her to get her hands on Rosie's phone or uh, my cricket bat or something like that. And yet if we just take it from her, she'll scream until she's got it back because that's what she's got her heart set on at that time. What we need to do is not just remove it, we need to replace it. And so as soon as we get dog dog, as many of you will have seen, then that's just enough for Lily. Remove it in, and she still goes after it, replace it, and then she's happy. 
Remember, idols are often good things that we can turn into God things. So replacing them doesn't necessarily getting rid of them altogether. They might be good things that we enjoy, but it's just changing the order so that God is our ultimate thing and we can enjoy things in the right order under him. How do we do that then? How can we beat our idols? Um, Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3 on page 1184. Let me read these verses. Paul, writing here, says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, dot, dot, dot. Paul, therefore, lists sins, that we are to put to death. At the end, talks about greed, which is idolatry. And whilst we might not put to death completely certain idols that we have, because they can be good things, we still need to lower the order that they come in. And so Paul says, how do you do this? Well, you need to set your hearts, because that's the seat of your being, and set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Set them on Christ because that is where your life is now hidden. We need to remember the better story that God offers us, the better story compared to the uselessness of our idols. In Ezekiel chapter 14, you don't need to turn there, but in Ezekiel chapter 14, when talking about idols, the, the people of God come to, come to God with requests, and God says, verse 3, Son of man, These men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. When any Israelite sets up idols in their hearts, puts a wicked stumbling block before his face, then go to a prophet. I, the Lord, will answer him myself in keeping with his great idolatry. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for their idols." Our hearts need to be recaptured. One way we can do this, Ezekiel goes on, therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, repent, turn from your idols and renounce all your detestable practices. Remember the better story and and God calls us to repent, to turn from our idols. Remember the verses we looked at earlier, the two sins we've committed are turning from God and turning to our idols. And so God says we need to do the opposite. We need to repent. We need to turn from our idols and turn back to the living God. And knowing that the promise that comes with repentance is forgiveness. Forgiveness that is instant. We don't need to wait around for it. Forgiveness that is total. It's not as if some, but not others. Forgiveness that is free. Nothing we need to do to earn it. Remember the better story of repentance and forgiveness. Remember the better story that comes with that then of no condemnation. As we repent and are forgiven, so Romans 8 verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We are totally forgiven. We are totally accepted. Remember what we've looked at previous months. We are justified just as if we have never sinned, just as if we have always obeyed. There is no condemnation. Remember the better story 
that we are adopted. Later on in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, For you did not receive a spirit that made you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship or adoption. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, so that we may share in his glory. We are adopted. We are part of his family. Something someone has said, the most wonderful truth that can be known to a human being, to be adopted as part of God's family. Friends of ours a few years ago um, have two little children and decided to adopt their third child, Tommy. And I remember speaking to the mum, Rosalie, um, about what that means for the family and how it is different or not with two biological children and then Tommy coming along. And she said that she rarely thinks about the fact that Tommy's adopted, but just looks at the three children as her three children. In fact, she sees Tommy along with her brother, his brothers as just one of the boys. And so, in fact, Tommy has now been written into their will, and Tommy has been written into their parents' will, because he is one of theirs. He is fully adopted. It helps that Tommy looks a little bit like their parents. Uh, the dad, Phil, was telling me he was out walking with Tommy on his shoulders, and someone passed him and said, oh, he looks just like you, he's got your eyes. <laughs> to which Phil couldn't bring himself to go, well, he is adopted, he's not got my eyes, but, but thank you. But he's adopted. He, he is fully one of their family, written into their will, written into their family. You are a child of God, and that can never change. Know the better story. And as we know the better story, will we embrace the better story? Let Jesus and and all that he is and all that he has achieved become more beautiful and more attractive than anything that this world offers. And so all that he is and all that he has achieved, let that speak into those idols that you can be tempted to go after. And in particular, those deeper idols. Let the better story of the gospel speak into those deeper idols to show that Jesus offers such a better story compared to anything else that this world offers. Now, we're thinking about these things partly because it flows out of what we've looked at previously, our union with Christ, and what that looks like to continue that transform, transformation, that sanctification as we're changed into uh, changed to be more like Jesus Christ. And, and so we hope that we as a church family are better equipped to be able to identify the idols that we can be tempted by and so deal with the idols that we are tempted by. And so if, as we looked at our surface idols and our deep idols, that was completely hypothetical for you, please do take the opportunity to think through what does that look like for me? What are those surface idols that I can be tempted by? And then I'm picking that to go, what are those, uh, those deeper idols that I'm really going after? But I hope that it's not just an isolated exercise, this. But I hope that as we grow as church family, we can be equipped to help one another. And so it's, it's my longing that as we grow in our love for one another, we might be able to help one another and look out for one another, which of course can mean being vulnerable with one another, but hopefully asking others to help us and us being able to help others.
as we look to become more and more like Jesus, as we look to let God capture our hearts or recapture our hearts from the idols that are out there. Why don't I pray for us, and then I think we're going to take a look at some of the questions. The words from an an old hymn, The dearest idol I have ever known, whatever that idol be, help me tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Father God, thank you for the better story of who Jesus is and all that he has achieved for us. Sorry for the times when we can be tempted to wander after the good things that you have given us and yet make them into the ultimate things in our lives. Help us and remind us of the better story of the gospel. Help us to embrace that and know that to not only be true, but to be good in our lives. And help us to help one another, that we might long to love and to support and care for one another here. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Woody, so much. And um, thank you for sending in questions. Um, there's still a short chance to do that um, if, you, uh, if you want to. Uh, but I'm going to dive straight in, Woody. We've got a question here which says, as Christians, we already have God, but often we idolize, uh, things we idolize uh, come from a desire for stuff we don't have. How should we think about our desires for earthly things? How do we desire God? Great. And uh, yeah, we looked at that a little bit in terms of the things that we don't have and the things that we do have and making them the ultimate thing as well. I, I think I, I, I want to come back. It's a phrase I've nicked, so I'd hate no um, credit for it. I want to come back to that better story of the gospel and look not just generally, Jesus died on the cross for me, but, but specifically what that means for me, what that has achieved for me. And so whenever I'm tempted by the thing that I don't have because of potentially the deep idol that I think that can bring me, to go, how does the better story of the gospel speak into that for me? So whether that's something like a deep idol, um, like security, and and I want a security in my life, and I think I can find that in a relationship, to actually remind myself of the better story that through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, through him adopting me into, my, into his family, I have the greatest security that no one can break or take away from me, that no relationship can deliver on apart from that relationship with God. So to, to come back to the better story, but to really dig deep into the better story, to go, where can that speak right into my deeper, deeper idols? Thank you. And just to draw out there, I think you're saying... The gospel is so much wider than um, Jesus has died to take the punishment for our sins. That is, of course, true. But there's a wide-angle view of that, which is actually that because of that, all these other things are true. Yeah. Yeah, I think, if you know it, two ways to live framework is wonderful. And yet, the danger can be that we kind of just spill that out without thinking. We know the gospel. and, And yet, the gospel is so much more multifaceted than just that. It's no less than that, but it's so much more than that, and so we can get right into it to see how not just has Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins, but he gives me a security, he gives me a comfort, he gives me assurance, dot, dot, dot. Thank yeah. you. There's a helpful to 
ask this question, I think, because this gives us a specific example. How do we get the balance right between the command to work as if working for the Lord whilst not treating our work as an idol? Should we be monks? Uh, I don't think we should be monks. Um, yeah, it's a great question, and I think we want to keep asking ourselves that question. Um, is a first step, and to do what this person's quoted, to work as if working for the Lord. Is that my motivation when I go to work every day, that I might be doing this for the Lord and not for myself? And, and of course that's hard, and of course I'll mess up on that every day. And yet to keep challenging myself, how much is my work become for me? Is it my everything compared to looking to serve the Lord in this place? And do, do get other people alongside you. If, if that's something you struggle with, have you got someone who can just text you regularly to go, how are you finding work? We all need to work, unless we're retired. If we all need to work from a paid point of view, and we all do different things. So it's not an idol that I can get rid of and just not do. But to have someone who's able to text me each week and go, how's work going? Has it got bigger than it should be? Are you serving the Lord through your work? It will just be an invaluable thing to have. Thank you. Um, and I, I find your framework, well, Tim Keller's framework, very helpful, <laughs> wherever he got it from as well, uh, of, of work could actually be, there could be a number of deep idols like security, um, comfort, mm-hmm. uh, control that, that are sparing, that are feeding into that, that need yeah. examining. Thank you. Um, really good couple of questions here. Um, would worry be described as an idol? Um, really good question. Um, I think I would want to say, what is the deeper idol that you are worrying for? And so actually, in, in one's worry, what is the motivation for that worry? And so almost to unpack that, and, and I think there will, well, I'm pretty sure there will not be one answer to that. There'll be, a there'll be many answers, depending on the individual, of why I find myself worrying so much. And actually to try and address the deeper idol and think that through and how the gospel can speak into that would be, I think, where I would go. Thank you. Very helpful. Final one. I know a lot of this in my head. Good. Um, why don't I always feel it in my heart? Uh, isn't that a challenge? And I'm surprised it's only got four votes on there. Um, yeah, and I've, I find that, and even, even as I prepare this, I kind of go, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I get it, and I, I feel a hypocrite for teaching it at times because I'm like, I get it, and I'll go home, and I'll wake up tomorrow, and I'll create idols because it doesn't grab my heart. Um, look, Lots of different things we could do. Pray, ask God to keep changing and transforming our hearts. Um, speak to other wiser Christians than me. There are lots here like that. Who, and, and more experienced Christians who have lived the Christian life and have grappled with these things for a lot longer who can go, look, this is how it's helped me shape my heart rather than just to be head knowledge that I, can, I know but doesn't grab me. Yeah. Thank you. And I, I thought what you said at the end was particularly helpful for me, may, may not be for others, but actually it's as we look at Christ and his character and what he's done that actually, by his spirit, I'm gradually changed. So, yeah, which is what we're doing, isn't it, as a church? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I want to say so much. <laughs> and it was good to say we all, it's our responsibility. We all do it to one another. Mm. Sorry, I'm just re- 
repeating no, no. all the great things you said at the end. Uh, thank you. Um, as Woody did say, it is our job to spur one another on, and one of the ways we do that is to pray together. So let's take a couple of minutes now. Those words again from Colossians. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And so we pray, our Heavenly Father, that we would indeed do that by the power of your Spirit. Please help us, Father, to set our hearts on things above, where Christ is. Please help us as a church, Father, to spur one another on in that end. And please, Father, help us to turn from those things you've created to turn to the Lord Jesus and, the, uh, and to know him as he truly is. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.